This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Hey, how's it going, everybody? In this episode, we had Kelly Shortridge. We, it was an amazing conversation. We talked about many, many deep topics. She's such a deep thinker. We talked about the relationship between InfoSec and DevOps. We talked about the cybersecurity market. We talked about behavioral and neuroeconomics. Be sure to check out this episode. If you like this and all the other stuff that we're doing, be sure to check out our website, hackervalley.studio. And as always, be sure to support us on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Hacker Valley Studio. Let's get to the episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley Studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. We have a very special guest with us. We have Kelly Shortridge. She's VP of Product Strategy at Capsulate. She's also a cybersecurity advisor. And when she's not practicing cybersecurity, she is studying and looking at the application of behavioral economics. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show. I love Return Oriented. I'm sure we're going to talk about that as well. If you could give us a little bit of your background and what you're doing today, I think that'd be great. Yeah, so I think the, the most succinct way of putting it is I used to be you know, one of the so-called masters of the universe, according to Goldman Sachs or whoever it was. I used to be an investment banker, specifically mergers and acquisitions, covering information security. From there, I started my own InfoSec startup that got acquired. And then I moved into the product side because I really love thinking about, you know, what are the, the fundamental problems that exist in the security space and how can we start digging into those and trying to reimagine our security solutions to be a bit better than what's out there today. But for some of the listeners, may, they may have heard of me more for my research on the behavioral economic side. So looking at things like cognitive biases, behavioral game theory, and applying that to InfoSec, also towards the goal of improving defensive strategy. Yeah, for the folks that aren't aware what behavioral economics are and how it relates to cybersecurity, what are some of the basic tenets of that? Yeah, so um, a lot of people have heard about, you know, basic supply and demand and, you know, what they may have learned in their Econ 101 classes. And behavioral economics kind of says, great, that's a nice theory. And they look at actual experimental evidence of how people behave. So mostly it's looking at, okay, what are the ways that people behave that seems different from what we predict someone rational would do. That certainly has a lot of manifestations in information security. So short and sweet is just behavioral economics is studying the way people actually make choices um, based on real world evidence. Hmm, that's uh, interesting. I think that one of the things that I think about is often when I think about that is how things are, are broken or that thing, or how things can be fixed. What are some of the things that you are speaking about today, or I saw that you're doing a lot of public speaking, especially about that topic. What are some things that you're working on today? Everything. <laughs> so I have, a, uh, I have a book in the works with O'Reilly on security chaos engineering. I'm really excited about that. And cognitive bias definitely um, plays into account there, particularly looking at, you know, taking into account the way people, again, actually behave, the way they actually think. Things like, you know, choice overload. I think everybody's heard about alert fatigue, and we all know it's a thing, but we don't necessarily understand the underlying kind of cognitive mechanism that leads to that. 
So choice fatigue is something well studied in behavioral economics. So I'm taking the lens of like, okay, how can we reimagine our processes? How can we start thinking about even the way we structure information security teams a little better? How can we change you know, just how we think about the InfoSec game on the defense side in order to better work with the way brains actually behave versus how we want them to behave. And I think a lot of the work I'm doing recently is also focused on status quo bias. So that's just people want things to stay the same way. Humans, I like to say, are allergic to uncertainty. Uh, fear of the unknown is one of the big drivers of a lot of the quote-unquote irrational behavior we see across a variety of disciplines. But I think in InfoSec, that's absolutely true. So when I've been thinking about why have, for instance, a lot of security teams been reticent to move to things like cloud or microservices and why they want to just copy paste over things like firewalls to those, even though it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, looking at biases like status quo bias, help really dig into the why behind that and making sense of those choices. So I think, you know, we've all heard about buzzword bingo and things mm-hmm. like that things skyrocket in importance and and seemingly impact and then they kind of die off but it from my standpoint it seems like there's a bit of a, a chicken and the egg relationship because obviously vendors are only going to want to do things that people are interested in so it it almost seems like us as practitioners we always look oh man they're just using the buzzwords but those those desires come from somewhere where do you stand on the situation I think it can be complex. I will say that the InfoSec industry has a huge stake in confusing practitioners, which I think is under-discussed. For instance, we have seen the rise of the term uh, SASE, which allegedly is supposed to be pronounced SASE, but I like to call it SASE because that's what's more intuitive to me. And it basically means zero trust, except including the blinky box network perimeter vendors, specifically because... I think it's because those large vendors tend to pay the research analyst firms to make sure that they're in whatever the newest, hottest bucket is. Because if you're paying six figures or more, then of course you should be in you know the top right quadrant, right? So right. I think when you're switching the terms on practitioners, they fundamentally become reliant on you. Because again, it goes back to choice fatigue. Like if you're a practitioner, you have hundreds, if not thousands of tools from which you could potentially choose. How do you sift through them? A lot of times you'll talk to like a research analyst firm or you'll talk to like a value-added reseller. And so then those companies become a middle point where they specifically want you to rely on them for help. They have an incentive to make things more confusing for you. And again, I think that's something that we don't talk about nearly enough is I think things could absolutely be simpler. We could be using simpler terms. We could be, you know, speaking in a much more common language, except there are these incentives to make sure that we don't. And that's true, not just on like the research house side, but also on the vendor side, they want to tell you, you know, that their, you know, next gen whatever is different than, you know, the thing you already know, because otherwise, why would you necessarily replace whatever you already have? Why would you necessarily buy their tool? You have to call it something else to get their attention. So I think there's a lot of bamboozlery going on that needs to be called out more. And I, I try to call it out as much as possible, even though I do sit on the vendor side, because I think, frankly, we all should be doing better on the vendor side. Our job is to support security practitioners, and I think fundamentally on the whole, we're failing in that goal. That That's very true. I think that there can always be improvement. I know that uh, when I first joined into cybersecurity, there was a lot of kind of hocus pocus from vendors that I would see. And it's great to hear that you're, you know, taking these initiatives and taking the steps to kind of clear the confusion and remove the mist from the situation. What are some steps 
that you've seen that we've already taken as an industry? And what are some steps that you think we can take going forward to kind of uh, relieve the problem even further? That's a great question. I think as far as steps going forward, because I'm not sure how much we as an industry are doing particularly well at it, to be honest. I think some CISOs are somewhat obviously hesitant to call out vendors who have bad behavior. It's not a great look necessarily for your career. Again, the vendors don't really have an incentive to do better. And so you see kind of a lot of the same, what I would call like negative feedback loop where the CISOs aren't willing to necessarily punish the vendors who are you know, partaking this bamboozlery. So they keep getting rewarded for that behavior. So I think there's this kind of like broken feedback loop that isn't getting fixed so far, but I think we can fix it. I think part of it is frankly, we're going to have to work a little harder on the practitioner side to actually start measuring the efficacy of tools. Measurement is obviously hard and it's a lot easier just to set and forget something and, you know, perform what I call security theater, something that looks like you're making progress without actually showing demonstrable outcomes. So putting more of an emphasis on actually proving the efficacy of tools, I think is important. Making sure that you're not just following the status quo. Challenging the status quo is very tough. There's a reason why, you know, famous philosophers like Camus say that one of the highest ideals of humanity, or the one of the highest things you can achieve in your life is rebelling against the status quo. It's hard, but I think we need more of that on the practitioner side, because inevitably, if practitioners push back more, and if they say, listen, like, Maybe you do have a good solution, but I'm not okay with the way that you're trying to like sell fear and certainty and doubt to me, then we're going to start to see much different behavior on the part of the vendors. I think also being, I'm trying to think, like going forward, it's, it's tough because you, you have kind of a first mover problem where whoever is calling people out, and I've certainly experienced this, like can get a brunt of criticism. So we all kind of have to move as a Borg ideally, which probably is unlikely to happen. But I think another thing as far as what vendors can do, and certainly just practitioners, even if they're not in buying, you know, if, even if they don't have buying power, is start documenting just kind of like basic threat models and talking about like, okay, let's walk through this realistically. Like the average organization maybe sees, I don't know, like one ODA year. I don't know what the statistics are, but maybe, as I pointed out um, before, like maybe we're overestimating how much focus we should spend on ODA and we're underestimating how much focus we should spend on things like the basics. And luckily in the past few years, I feel like some CISOs have been really harping on, no, we need to do the basics right, which is great. But I think we just need to keep going steps further. We need to keep calling out just our peers on kind of both sides of the aisle. Like, look, you're, you're not thinking about it this way. Actually document these assumptions and walk through them. And you're going to start to see where, you know, maybe this doesn't make sense. So I think we think of it, knowledge sharing and infosec so much as like IOCs and IPs and whatever else. And we don't really necessarily think about the processes involved. And I think we need a lot more knowledge sharing there that could potentially help. One thing that we try to do with our show is we try to, to bring that shroud of mystery around cybersecurity down because we want more people to want to join the space, to join the community, to feel like they, they can belong. You don't have to be a genius to be in cybersecurity. Could this be also a situation where we, you know, provide education for people about vendors, not maybe specifically like calling them out, but just telling them about, you know, these are basics that you can do within your organization to, you know, bring you to an 85% solution. And you don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a particular vendor to do it. Uh, do you think there is a space to do that kind of work? Oh, absolutely. I think that's hugely important. And again, thinking about things like process, thinking about like, 
the fact that security should actually be a center of trust and be collaborating a lot of these activities, but maybe not being a silo in itself, promoting those sorts of ideals, promoting the idea that, hey, you know what, maybe if we encourage more security, like in systems design by working with our colleagues more, developing those things that infosec people hate, soft skills, maybe we can make some progress. Again, kind of calling out those assumptions that the industry has long held to be true, that maybe we need to rethink, I think is hugely important. And particularly coming from a podcast that people respect, like it's, you know, it's the whole appeal to authority thing, right? People will be like, okay, like if these guys are saying it, maybe I should be taking like a second look at this. So one of the things that you touched on a bit was alert fatigue. And when I think of that, I think of, of, of course, what the tool that I'm looking at is giving me, it might uh, wear me out just by looking at it. But also there's a, a side of me that allows the alerts to wear me down because uh, maybe I'm just kind of going through them back to back without a break. What are some things that you've seen or that you've kind of touched upon that reduces alert fatigue, even from a, a non-technological perspective? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. And there are a few different ways I think alert fatigue could be reduced. One thing I, I think is probably the spicier take is we're collecting the wrong kind of data insecurity, and that's contributing a lot to alert fatigue. It's understandable. We're really paranoid about false negatives. Um, we don't want to miss anything. But I think we're falling prey to the idea that more data is better, and it's not. And I think a lot of that is due to because we don't actually know what we need to be measuring. We don't actually know what we need to be observing. And we're thinking much more as far as like total visibility instead of like actual observability. Like what are the stories that are being told in those systems? Um, which sounds like really hokey, but it's something that's been pretty well tread on the op side of the house. So I think there's a lot we could learn from there as far as being able to reduce kind of our data pipelines. And ultimately, like if you have fewer false positives because you're collecting better data, like I think everyone wins. So that's that's one component that people generally don't like to talk about quite as much. There are other things you can do more on the UX side that can certainly be helpful. And I think most practitioners tend to agree that security UX is just awful. Uh, there's not nearly enough, it like, is. frankly, behavioral science behind it. There's not enough like A-B testing to figure out the best workflows. So I think that's that's certainly part of it as well, is we, we need to pay a lot more attention to not just like, are the tools powerful, but also are the tools usable? Are they easy to use? Like, it's pretty understandable. If you're a SOC analyst that's had a 12-hour shift, you're on your like 30th alert in an hour, like, how could we possibly expect you to be picking up every detail, Right. And so we need to build our tools with the understanding that it's not just alert fatigue in one tool, it's alert fatigue across many tools. And how can we reduce those attentional demands? How can we bring the absolute most important piece of knowledge to the forefront? How can we start, which is frankly with like better correlation, how can we start telling these incident stories rather than just like individual event data points to try to help practitioners out? And from what I've seen, most, most of the industry isn't really thinking that way. As a VP of product strategy, I'm sure that you have a lot of involvement and you're able to kind of guide that direction at your current organization. What are some things that, you know, you've taken from just seeing things from a practitioner perspective? What are some kind of values or strategies that you kind of live by at by being a VP of product strategy? Yeah, my goal is always to ensure that no one will curse us when like we're not overly getting in their way. So some examples, like we have no illusions about being a single pane of glass. Like that's some, not something we want to be. We figure everybody already has their SIM or log management tool or whatever else. They already have their graph set up and we'll plug into that. We're not going to force you to like log in and see our dashboard versus other dashboards. 
And we're also very focused again on kind of those incident narratives and trying to bring up like what data actually matters as well as just frankly, like reducing the number of alerts total. And that gets more into the actual like detection approach, which I don't, I don't want to like be pitching on this podcast, so I won't go into that. Into that. <laughs> um, but in general, I think it's, you know, constantly bringing in, I feel like um, every week I'm bringing like real stories from people I know in the industry and talking about like, these are the actual problems that they're facing. Like, this is how they're feeling. You know, when we create user journeys in-house, like focusing on like, you know what, this on-call analyst is just, they really want to go to bed. They don't want to have to deal with us. They're going to be really cranky right now. And we need to be mindful of that. And we need to build our tool, remembering that this person could be sleep deprived and is going to be really frustrated if our alert is just garbage in a false positive and we've, they've been woken up for nothing. So I think really just remembering that we're not building security tools for like the ether or, you know, a bunch of machines or whatever else is, these are humans, they're stressed out humans, and we need to be like really empathetic to that and act accordingly. I'm, I'm glad you brought up SIM because there's a huge debate going on right now in cybersecurity as to whether, aside from compliance reasons, but the efficacy of, of SIM, where do you stand on that, that, that argument? Yeah, I think, I think you can go back and forth a lot. I do think having some central place to aggregate a bunch of data can be useful because again, through the kind of story mindset, it's, it's always better if you can take data um, from different points. So for example, like we take, we look at like the infrastructure layer, like containers, like VMs, whatever else, but it can be really useful to combine us with, let's say like application performance monitoring data, because then you can see like different layers where an attack campaign is being conducted and you can pull together this kind of incident narrative. So I think having one place to aggregate that kind of data can be useful. But again, if we go back to incentives, SIM vendors absolutely have an incentive to try to get you to collect as much data as possible. Um, because that's how they make money, right? So they don't have a really great incentive to find ways to help you cut down on your data, to help you figure out what's the data that matters. And I think that's been a huge problem we've seen in the industry. Absolutely. I think I think that's one of the, the, the tougher things to do as a security practitioner or even as a security leader is understand the types of data that one would need to make informed decisions about the events or alerts that are created. Uh, from your experience, uh, what are some ways to start on collecting that type of data that would be uh, helpful to collect and, and store? So this may be an unusual answer, but I actually think threat modeling is the right place. So I'm a big proponent of creating decision trees for whatever assets you about which you care. So let's say it's like an S3 bucket that's storing customer data. When you start mapping out decision trees, you already start with like the easiest path, which would be what I always call YOLO sec, which is you do nothing. So in this case, it would be like the S3 bucket's publicly accessible, right? That's the YOLOSEC path, and the attacker can just like access the bucket, and then they win the day. But once you start moving over, you look at things like, okay, let's add in like authentication as a counter to that. Or first, let's make it private. Let's add, add in authentication. And it's like, okay, clearly we need to start looking at AWS IAM data, because that's like the mitigation we put in place. You keep moving over the layers, and then you end up having things, for example, like, okay, we know that next they'll try to attack like, some some related like server infrastructure. That means we need to be monitoring our servers. Like as you create those likely attack paths, like how the attacker would get to their goal, you start really discovering like, okay, what's the signal that matters? And there's a lot of signal that doesn't matter. And having those, that idea of like, okay, what's the easiest path for the attacker? Let's make sure we're getting data to check whether they're trying those paths first, I think is what's most important. 
like you eventually the goal in the decision tree is the very right hand side is going to be the hardest path, which as I tend to put is like Ode all the way down. It's very unlikely that an attacker is going to blow like a chain of Ode on you, particularly for like an S3 bucket, unless you're storing like nuclear codes or something. Right. So you probably don't need, for example, like monitoring, trying to detect like hypervisor Ode because it's just unrealistic, but you definitely do need that IAM data. So I think putting in that kind of like, putting that kind of like visual layout of like, here are the easiest paths, here are the hardest paths, and let's start with the mitigations and the data we need to cut out those easiest paths to raise the cost of attack to the attacker. I think that's the best way to prioritize. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what healthy looks like when you have folks on the DevOps side and you have security. What are some of your thoughts on how, you know, these groups of folks can get along and actually get the most bang for their buck? I have a ton of thoughts here. Did probably take the whole podcast, to be honest. I think there's there's certainly, since I I know given the current climate, a lot of people are really focused on budget and how budgets are probably going to have to be tightened a little bit. I would say this is a huge opportunity, actually, for DevOps and security to work well together because... There's a pretty good chance, for instance, that your DevOps team already has monitoring monitoring in place for your databases, and you can leverage that data for security signal. Maybe you're collecting data, like, again, at the infrastructure layer that they could use for performance monitoring. So I think there are opportunities to share signal and ultimately then share budget and reduce budget that um, you obviously can't realize unless you're talking and kind of brainstorming together. And I think it goes back to a larger point, which is that ultimately I think security is a part of stability risk and DevOps absolutely cares about stability. The problem is security doesn't always think of it that way. And so we don't necessarily reach out to our colleagues in that, you know, department in the organization to be like, Hey, listen, for instance, you know, a DDoS can cause downtime. Like downtime is absolutely not something you want. If you're on the DevOps side, it kills like whatever performance indicators and performance goals that you have. So you know what, when we're implementing some sort of DDoS mitigation, we're probably helping you out on the availability side and helping preserve your uptime. What are the other opportunities where our goals are actually aligned? I think brainstorming in that way really helps you come to solutions that help you both. And it means that you can each kind of flag each other. One of my colleagues has talked about the fact that if you really look at incident response processes, both for DevOps and InfoSec, they're remarkably similar And there's really no reason why you can't start having those processes overlap and you can't start working together more on those. So I actually think there's just like tons of opportunity. It's one of those things where I I feel like we're frenemies now, but we really should be genuine friends because we have so much in common. You know, we have the same interests. We have the same hobbies. Like we should be hanging out all the time and we just aren't because we think, you know, that we're rivals. And I, I think it, I, I think there's a lot you can potentially psychoanalyze about why there's this perceived rivalry, rivalry. but I know for sure I've spoken now at quite a few DevOps events and I, I have plenty of friends on that side and they know that security is important, but they also know that they have to deliver services that deliver revenue. So they can't compromise that, but they do want to work with security people to make it better. It's just if you're a security person saying, no, it has to be this way or the highway and no, we can't take on like any risk, of course, they're not going to want to work with you. They're going to try to sidestep you. So there has to be like more compromise, I think. Do you think there's a lot of overlap with uh, DevOps engineers going over to InfoSec and uh, InfoSec joining DevOps teams? Honestly, I think it's more likely to be the former than the latter, just because 
infosec professionals tend to not have as much development experience. And I fundamentally think that if you have development experience and certainly more on the infra offside, if you have more like sysadmin experience, I think you can pick up infosec concepts pretty quickly. Again, if you've heard of resilience and you've thought of resilience at all on the offside, you're going to be pretty well poised to understand what security risks are in your systems. And you're going to be able to I think better able to understand how to mitigate them because you understand the systems better. The problem is on the infosec side, if you have no systems experience, you don't have development experience, it's going to be much harder for you to actually figure out how to, for instance, like build security in by design because you don't understand the design part. So I'm of the belief it's actually much easier to teach DevOps how to do security better than security how to do DevOps better. That's brilliant. One thing that I want to bring up is some people call it paved road. Some people call it golden path. What would you say for those security orgs that are pretty lean? So they're pretty reactive, not necessarily as proactive as they would like, but being on a paved road for their engineers would fix so many problems and and streamline so many processes. What would you say to those teams that are pretty lean and could would benefit from a paved road, but they are having a hard time actually carving out the time to get there? I think that's certainly a convenient excuse. It's kind of like, uh, you know, for instance, me, like I, one of my hobbies is fiction writing and there's always an excuse for me not to work on my fiction novel. There's always not enough time if I don't want there to be time. So it's a matter, I think, of prioritization and what you're willing to trade off. And I think in a way there's an interesting, when you start to get into the psychology of it, and this, by the way, is in no way blaming anyone. Uh, I'm just purely looking at how the human mind works. You can really become used to, frankly, like ongoing trauma and ongoing stress, and that becomes your new normal. And I genuinely think in some ways there are some security teams that don't actually know how to cope with normal. They're so used to firefighting all the time that they feel like if they're not doing that, then they're doing something wrong, that they have to be reacting all the time because that's that's what good is. That's how responsible looks rather than more of that like slower, more thoughtful strategy. So I'd say that it's okay. It's your brain. Your lizard brain is telling you that you can't do this. And that's obviously easier said than done. But I think understanding that it's just long-term investments, the same thing with like working out, like it may suck short-term. Some people like it, some people don't, but it pays dividends in the long-term. And sometimes you just have to do it. And I think one thing that a lot of people in InfoSec overlook is that all of this toil, that's a term taking from like Google's SRE book, all this manual repetitive work really is not something InfoSec has to do. They start partnering with DevOps and they start telling DevOps like, listen, you should be more responsible, like or accountable for the security problems you create. We can help guide you towards like maybe how to fix it, but you're going to be the one doing it. That may feel scary because you're ceding control and it may feel a little more uncertain for that reason, but you're going to be doing a lot less manual work. And I think most people would like to not have to, you know, undergo the same, again, really tedious, repetitive work they have to do all the time and to use a little more intellectual brain power and think more strategically. But it's... Again, I also understand that brains brains are very good at telling telling people that you can't do that and that you can't take a breath and that you can't take a step back. So it's it's a tough problem. It is easy to get caught up in thinking that there's always a fire to to put out. And, and from your experience, um, sounds like you've worked with a lot of different organizations. What would you consider a more more mature security practice that? has interaction with their DevOps teams? Have you seen something that is worth mentioning that's like, okay, this is uh, 
somewhat of a standard for how the teams uh, should interact and where they should be? Definitely. I can I can think of a few companies, but I think what they have in common is security is a lot more distributed. It's not in a central siloed place. There aren't really the same sort of central security approvals required, for instance, before like any sort of release or before implementing technology. They're allowing like the business line or the product line to accept the risk. So security can flag the risk, but then the product line is the one who ends up you know, signing the document like, yep, we're aware of this risk and we're willing to take it on. So this the buck doesn't stop with the security team. The security team is really much more of an advisor. It's a subject matter expert that helps the other teams understand security risk better. But ultimately, the teams who are creating the security risk are accountable for them. Um, there are also teams that tend to, as a result of this, like they will bring in these kind of security experts who are on the security team when they're designing their systems, when they're performing threat models, when they're considering architectural changes. But ultimately, again, security is not responsible for implementing those. It's that team. Security is not responsible for you know, keeping all of that knowledge in a silo. It's much more distributed. So I think it's, it's again, it's that relinquishing of control, which I think a lot of the infosec industry is wildly uncomfortable with the idea of that. But that's ultimately what helps. That's ultimately what I think helps these companies succeed, because it's frankly, I think we've seen in countless other industries when you don't have a unification of responsibility and accountability. It's just a moral hazard problem. Like if you have, if you're building something and if it breaks, you're not the one who has to fix it. Of course, you're going to build wild stuff, right? There's a reason why generally we try to reconcile those. We have like specific incentives in line to try to ensure that people don't just create dangerous stuff, but we don't really see that in InfoSec, which I, I've always found very curious. And I think the teams that are doing it right are the ones who have picked up on that and are making sure that, you know, incentives are in line, aligned properly. And again, treating security much more like a subject matter expert than a gatekeeper. You're obviously a, a brilliant cybersecurity leader. Where does the passion for psychology come from? I've, I've heard you mention some really, really interesting concepts as far as psychology is concerned. Where, where does that knowledge come from? Where does that passion come from for you? So I'm a huge dork who really loves to read academic papers at night and on weekends. Um, so that's how I stay up to date. But my background, my undergrad was in economics. And I've continued to keep up with the field and specifically behavioral economics, even neuroeconomics, actually. I love kind of that emerging field as well, like getting down to the exact brain regions that are triggering some of our quote unquote irrational behavior. So if anything, I feel like I'm more passionate in some ways about the behavioral side than the infosec side, because I very drawn to understanding how humans make choices and how humans think and what's behind like all of this seemingly crazy stuff we do in our lives. So I, I always find that and even even things like how we think about how we think, like, are we aware about our own biases? Like there's a, a new kind of newish area of discipline called metacognitive myopia, which basically has shown that, for instance, even if people are told that information they have is wrong, they will still rely on that information. And this includes experts who should know better. So it's stuff like that. I, I just find it absolutely fascinating. And the reason why I was drawn to InfoSec is frankly, the dynamics are so broken. I was kind of greenfield for someone with an interest in behavioral economics. There's just, there's no end to the different ways that it's broken and the different facets you can analyze. So it, it keeps it entertaining for sure. 
from a, a technology perspective, I, I, I'm fascinated by this, this concept of neuroeconomics. What, what are some examples you can provide for our listeners and, and for us, because I'm super curious, what examples can you provide for us from um, a business perspective? What sort of things are, are companies looking at to affect us uh, from a cognitive perspective? Well, there's, there's potentially a lot, but I think one of the key things, which I actually talked about on a behavioral podcast recently is fear. If you look kind of at the brain, like one of the biggest triggers for this kind of like what I call lizard brain thinking for those who are more familiar with behavioral economics, you can think of like system one thinking. It's this really fast, like evolutionary driven thinking. Fear is one of the ultimate triggers of that. It causes us to think like, uh, you know, everything's on fire. Oh my gosh, I have to decide this now. Like the joke I always make is like, if a bear is chasing you and you're trying to, you know, think strategically, okay, if I zigzag, like if I do this and that, like you're going to get eaten because you're going to be thinking too much. <laughs> so there's mm-hmm. a reason why our brains are just like run, run right now. The problem with InfoSec and why I specifically rail about uh, against things like FUD so much when you see it from vendors is that's like a direct kind of like sap to our lizard brain. And it gets us to make a lot more of that, again, kind of like irrational decision making. It makes us make hasty choices and makes us focus on, you know, risks that maybe aren't as important. It puts us in firefighting mode. Like it's a huge drive for of a lot of these things. So I think this is why I've been espousing the resilience approach so much because it's once you embrace that failure is inevitable, it's a lot more chill, to be honest. It doesn't mean that you just like don't care anymore. It's it's about acceptance. Like, okay, failure will happen. Let's make sure we can recover from it quickly. Let's make sure that we feel prepared for when the inevitable happens. Let's make sure that we're learning from it and that we can spin it into this kind of positive event. But if you're trying to prevent failure, if failure is just like the worst thing in the world, you're just terrified of it, of course you're gonna make like less rational decisions because you're gonna be thinking with your lizard brain. And if you're accepting it, then it's like, okay, like now we know we have processes in place, like let's now think a little more strategically. So that's one of the things it's, I view resilience as kind of like the ultimate chill pill in a way for the infosec industry. Yeah. When you talk about FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, you know, that's obviously one of the easiest ways for different vendors to get business. What are some other ways that vendors could be advertising to maybe not get as much business because obviously it's working for a reason, but what are some legitimate ways that vendors could advertise themselves and actually still make a name for themselves in the space? Yeah, so one one thing I do pretty frequently is when big vulnerabilities come out, I write something that's called a panic button, which is basically the idea behind that is, should you push the panic button or not? The vast majority of the time, the answer is no, because a lot of the bugs that end up getting hyped, particularly in the Linux space, are things that require local access already. It means the attacker needs some other sort of foothold. But basically what the panic buttons do is they give a very neutral take of like, okay, here's generally with an analogy, like here's what's going on. Here's the actual risk profile. Like, no, you probably shouldn't panic. Like, yes, you probably need to patch, but like the likelihood of exploitation is pretty low. I think those neutral takes, like people still want to understand what's going on, but you can still do that without telling them that like the sky's on fire. You can provide actually useful advice. And again, that kind of like neutral take. And I think people find really valuable. I think the other thing is helping kind of nudging, nudging people along and thinking differently. I think, you know, one thing I've been, very careful not to do is to say like, listen, like all of your systems will be owned and you're going to, 
you know, completely run out of budget, whatever else, like you could say lots of scary rhetoric as far as like why you need to work with DevOps. Um, but I try to focus on the benefits a little more because I think that's ultimately what's more helpful. I, I guess I just find it really kind of gross, honestly, to portray everything as like avoiding a negative. Whereas I think we would feel a lot better as an industry if we started thinking about, okay, like what are the positives? And again, stop, stopping treating failures like this horrible, terrible thing. It's like, it's happened to all of us. I think there aren't many CISOs that I know who haven't experienced some sort of incident. So treating it like it's this kind of like dirty taboo, I don't think it's helping anyone and FUD certainly plays into that. So I think vendors providing like neutral takes on things, honestly, like talking about themselves openly and honestly, I think it's, you can talk about your differentiators without saying you're best in class or first at this or the only this and making up a new category for yourself. I think you can say like, for instance, with my company, it's like, yep, there are container scanning schools, tools and they do this. That's not what we do. We're doing like container detection and response, like being just say it in plain English, right? But again, it doesn't necessarily get all the headlines and the clicks and the fame and glory or whatever else, but I can definitely tell you that customers appreciate it more. So. Wow. Kelly, thank you so much for all the information you've just given to us. I am certainly just beaming with uh, curiosity about some of the things that you've brought up. Definitely some things for, for people to take away and, and be- take back to the office. So with all the things that you do, all the research, all the things that you're putting out into the community, what are some ways that people can keep in touch with you and all the things that you have going on? I'll be honest, I am one of those terrible people who is really bad at checking email and LinkedIn and Twitter messages are even worse. So email is your best bet. But I am on those two social media platforms. I do have a blog, actually both on the company blog as well as the personal blog. So yeah, so I I do all that sort of stuff. So again, email is the best bet. And I would definitely recommend just in general, like looking to other domains as well. Like I, obviously I, I think the work I do as far as applying like behavioral econ to InfoSec, my work on you know, resilience and trying to help the DevOps and security marriage, as I put it, all of that's really important, but there are lessons to learn from other industries as well, whether that is on kind of like the infrastructure operation side or healthcare or aviation, like a lot of these industries have wrestled with very similar problems. So we shouldn't be scared to, you know, not reinvent the wheel and try to learn from some other people too. Great, great. So did you want to drop your email or should we just put it in the notes? Sure. Uh, it's kelly at graywire.net and my personal site, there's kellyshortridge.com, which is pretty straightforward. And my research site is swagita.com, S-W-A-G-I-T-D-A.com. Great. Thank you for that. And we'll also be sure to put that in the description for everyone to visit and we'll see everyone next time.